are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us today for our Thursday afternoon question and answer time. Of course, here on the West Coast of the United States, it is Thursday at 12 noon, just beginning the afternoon. I do not know what time it is or uh, what day it is, because you could be in a certain time zone where it's even the next day. But I'm so pleased that you could join me today for our weekly time where we do, to the best of our ability, get together on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, Today, I'm wearing my Blue Letter Bible uh, shirt Uh, just out of gratitude for our friends at Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible is an amazing Bible resource. Now, um, I have my own website, EnduringWord.com, where I have a verse-by-verse written commentary on the Bible, available absolutely free in English and a lot of other languages. But I'm very grateful because the good folks at Blue Letter Bible were the first ones to put my content out on the internet and kind of gave me an idea that it could be helpful or valuable to some people in some situations. So, of course, I'm very, very grateful to them. And I just thought it might be kind of fun uh, to show you um, at the beginning here uh, what it was like when they first put my uh, commentary on. This is back in the 90s. I can't decide if this picture comes from 1996 or 1998, but that's what it looked like in the very early days of the Blue Letter Bible, where you could go, and doesn't that look like an old classic, really kind of website? Anyway, that's what it looked like, and there was my Bible commentary among all those guys. I can't tell you how embarrassed I was to think that my work would be next to some of the work of those other fellows uh, who have done such remarkable job serving the Lord and proclaiming His Word over the years, uh, but God has seemed to use it since then, so... A lot of gratitude to our friends at Blue Letter Bible. Here on a Thursday afternoon, let me tell you how we do it. We begin with a lead question. Uh, Maybe it's just something I want to talk about. Maybe it's a question we didn't get to last week in the Q&A. Maybe it's something that's come in through social media or email. This particular day, we're going to deal with the question, should we always submit to the government? And this question comes from Deborah. Okay, so here's her question. She says, Uh, I'm reading Titus and have a question regarding Titus chapter 3, verse 1. I do use your commentary when studying, but would appreciate some clarification on this piece of scripture. Uh, President Biden has mandated vaccines effective January 4th. Of course, she's speaking of in the United States. Uh, This will put my husband out of work as we have chosen, or we must receive the jab, the vaccination. How do we reconcile this disobedience as it relates to Titus chapter 3, verse 1? Is it similar to the religious exemption Daniel and his friends practiced? I know these choices can come with consequences. Well, again, Deborah, let me say thank you for your question. I think this is a very relevant question, something that touches a lot of people. So you're making your question in reference to Titus chapter 3, verse 1. So let's take a look at those verses Um, I'm going to look at it first in the New King James Version. That's the Bible translation I normally use and what I use in my commentary work. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. 
Well, that seems pretty simple there. I mean, Paul says a basic part of teaching for the Christian is that Christians should be taught to obey the government, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to do what the government tells you to do. I mean, that's just the simple meaning of Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, Let's take another look at it in the New Living Translation. Sometimes I like this translation for just kind of how, you know, it speaks in a more modern voice. Uh, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. Okay, so again, that's another look at that verse. Again, it's pretty plain. It's pretty straightforward. We as Christians are told that we should submit to the government. If I could just say, God has commanded his people, the disciples of Jesus Christ, to submit to authority. Now, here in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, and in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the thought is of obedience to or submission to the government. But I want you to understand this. God has commanded us as his people, again, the disciples of Jesus, to submit to authority in many different areas or spheres. When you take a look at this through the New Testament, you see that submission is directed generally in the congregation. Christians are in general to do what Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says they should do, submit to one another. That's sort of a general attitude of submission, to not be self-willed. But Submission is specifically commanded in the church with what we might call congregants commanded to submit to church leaders. You'll find that in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Submission is also commanded in the workplace with slaves commanded to submit to masters. Now, today we would make the modern analogy of employees being commanded to submit to their employers, but you'll find that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Submission is commanded in the home. Children are commanded to submit to their parents, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And wives are specifically commanded to submit to their husbands, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Finally, we would say, submission is commanded from citizens to their government, as we saw in Titus 3, 1, and then it's also found in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. So we have these several different spheres of submission. The church, uh, employment, the home, the government, citizens to their government. By the way, maybe we should just take a quick look at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. This says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, you you see, it's the same basic idea as Titus chapter 3, verse 1, but it's filled out a little bit more, saying that, listen, God has an appointed role for government. Now, let's go back to the big picture again. We have these different spheres or areas of submission. Congregation, workplace, family, government. This is what I want you to understand. The principles of submission are consistent in these different areas. 
And I'm just going to draw out two principles. I'm not saying that there's not more principles we could draw out, but two important principles to remember in regard to this. Again, we're talking about submission to a human authority, whether it's the authority of the workplace, the family, the government, the congregation. Submission to human authority is not just complying or submitting when you agree. Now, this is important, and it's often neglected. If a child only does what the parents tell the child to do, when the child happens to agree with the parents, that's not submission at all. That's just agreement. So you could say, in a very real sense, that submission isn't even really tested until there is an area of agreement. So in any of these areas of submission, um, workplace, family, government, congregation, if we're talking about these different areas of submission, we can't just say, well, I will submit when I agree, okay? Because um, I may not agree that I want to pay taxes or pay such high taxes. I may agree that I don't, I may think that I don't want to be bound by the traffic laws. I could go on and on in, in different areas, but you get this principle. Submission is not only complying or submitting when you happen to agree. Okay, that's number one. Number two, submission in these human spheres of authority is never absolute. That is, if any of these areas of authority command us to do something that goes against God's command, then we obey God first. God never commands absolute submission in an area of human authority. Whether that human authority is from the congregation, whether it's from the workplace, whether it's from the family, or whether it's from the government. Um, your well, I'm trying to think of a, of a good way to phrase this, a good, a good way to present this. Um, if the government tells us that we can't be Christians, Romans 13 and Titus chapter 3 don't tell us to submit to that. If they tell us that we can't meet together as Christians, then we don't, again, the government isn't the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. So we have these two things that I would call our attention. You see, we can sin by not submitting when we should, and by really only submitting when we happen to agree, and that isn't submission at all. So that's one area where we can sin. But then the other area we can sin is by submitting to a human authority against the commandment of God. I, I know an example. This was the example I was searching for in my mind just a moment ago. I remember years ago when I uh, pastored in another community, a woman came to me because she said, Pastor, my husband wants me to sign our tax return to the government, but I know he's lying on the tax return. I know the figures aren't right. This is fraud. This is deception. I, I can't sign it. Pastor, am I doing the right thing? And I told her, I think with biblical, you're absolutely doing the right thing. Now, somebody could say, well, no, the Bible says that she should submit to her husband. No, her husband is telling her to sin. Her husband is telling her to lie. 
She needs to obey God first. Now, if the husband commands something that isn't a sin or, or that, then that's a different matter altogether. But again, there is never an absolute command of submission on the level of human authority. Now, what makes this especially difficult right now in our whole COVID pandemic vaccination environment, what makes it especially difficult is when the commandment of God is expressed in a matter of conscience, not a specific command. Now, I think this is valid to stand on our conscience as Christians. But here's the thing. We need to make sure that we're standing upon our Christian conscience, not mere peer pressure. I mean, let me just be very straightforward with you. Why is it truly that you object to receiving the vaccination? Is it because of peer pressure? Is it because of social media agitation? Is it because of your reaction to what you get from a news outlet? So what I'm saying is, I'm not saying that those things can't inform or influence, but if our conscience is prompted by God, by our relationship with Jesus Christ, and not merely because of peer pressure, social media agitation, um, uh, reaction to a news outlet, then there is a place for disobeying the government based on our Christian conscience. But, but I don't want to make it too easy for you. If you are a Christian claiming a religious conscience objection for the vaccination, then I challenge you to really take it to the Lord and ask him to just speak to you and work it through your heart. Don't, don't just easily accept it. Because there are some people who want a vaccination exemption because their Christian conscience has genuinely moved them. I would just say then, God bless you, follow your conscience. But there are others, we must admit, there are others who are really doing it. They happen to be Christians, but they're really doing it because of peer pressure, because of social media agitation or reaction to news outlets. So again, let me say, if you are seeking a vaccination exemption on the basis of Christian conscience, then please take the time before the Lord to really seek him about it. Read the word. Of course, read up on the information that's out there, but ask God to test your heart to see if it really is for the right reasons before God. And if we disobey the government out of our obedience to God, then we must, as Deborah said, bear the consequences. And I would just say, God bless you, brother or sister, who is bearing consequences because of your Christian conscience. When I say Christian conscience, I mean, you've really worked this out before the Lord. So let me just review here. We have these different areas or spheres of submission that are given to us in God's word. The congregation, the workplace, the family, the government, and the principles of submission are consistent in these different areas. Namely, I would say, submission isn't just complying or submitting when you happen to agree. This happens. 
That's not what submission is. We need to submit even when we disagree, but not to the violation of Christian conscience. Submission in these human spheres is never absolute. That is, if any area of authority commands us to do something that goes against God's command, we obey God first. That's our approach to this. That's how we understand these things. And God helping us, that's what we're going to do. So again, um, Deborah, I'm hoping that that is helpful for you here. Um, again, I, I hope this just helps you out a bit. And um, again, my prayer is for Christians who are operating on a claimed Christian conscience exemption, that they would genuinely seek the Lord about, and that it would be a genuine Christian um, conscience exemption, and, and not merely, you know, a suggestion to your own mind. Okay, that's that for that. Let's go on now to the questions that have come in on our live chat. Our Swedish correspondent, Tunnel Banan, Subway, asks this. Why didn't God just kill Satan directly when he became evil to get rid of all evil in the universe before it could spread to humans? Okay, well, Subway or Tunnel Banan, that is a great question. But let me simply answer it this way, because God had a purpose in allowing Satan's um, sin and destruction. Here's the purpose. God wanted to bring forth something greater than a world of innocence, we normally think that the world of innocence would be the greatest good, a world where sin had never happened, a world where, a world where Adam and Eve and mankind following would just be in the Garden of Eden. Now, we may think that way, and, you know, I mean, that I'm not saying we're crazy to think that way, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that greater than the world of innocence is the world of redemption. And we must never forget that. The world of redemption is greater than the world of innocence. So friends, let's come back to this idea again and again. God wanted to do something greater than a world of innocence. He wanted to do a world of redemption and to make a world of redemption sin destruction, brokenness has to be allowed into the equation. So really, uh, that's why God did not kill Satan directly, because God had a purpose even for the evil of Satan. That's the most direct way that I can answer that, and I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Junebug. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 24 says, strive to enter into the narrow gate, the NLT, New Living Translation, uses the phrase, work hard. How can I view this verse and not fall into the te temptation of believing that I need to work towards salvation? Okay, so first, let me read to you Luke chapter 13, verse 24, which says this. Strive to enter in through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
Now, I think that's a very significant verse. And this very significant verse tells us that the kingdom of God is not to be engaged with passively. In Junebug, I would just simply explain it to you this way. We are not saved by our good works or our hard work, but we are saved so that we can do good works and we can work hard for the kingdom of God. I'm always blown away by those opening verses in, um, uh, where is it now? Those opening verses in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul tells us that he had a great endeavoring, that he worked harder than any of the other apostles. Make no mistake about it. The apostle Paul was a hardworking apostle. But he didn't work hard to earn his salvation. He worked hard because he was saved. You might say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is very important. There's an order involved here. Just like you say that when a horse pulls a cart or a car pulls a trailer, something has to be in front and something has to be behind. The car has to be in front if it's going to pull the trailer. And by the same token, we must have um, the good works following our salvation, not in order that we would be saved. But Jesus is pointing out something that's very important. We receive salvation. But you could say, and look, I'm speaking a little bit imprecisely. If somebody wanted to argue with my terminology here, I would just ask for a little bit of grace and that you'd hear the heart behind what I'm saying here. We receive salvation passively. We just receive it. It's the gift of God that we receive by faith. However, we engage with the kingdom of God actively, having been saved. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. Our engagement with the kingdom of God must be active. You know, the Bible says that we as Christians should not be asleep. And it's using that uh, figure metaphorically, of course, because we need our sleep every night. But in your Christian life, you shouldn't be sleepwalking through it. You should be active and engaged in your Christian life. So Joyce, it's or Junebug, I should say, it's really a matter of just having things in proper order. I hope that makes some sense to you. And let me just take a moment out here to say uh, how um, pleased I am that we have our TWR uh, 360 audience. God bless that TWR 360 audience. Uh, We're very pleased that we can be a part of what they're doing. Um, That audience, of course, is with us all along the way on our Thursday afternoon question and answer time. And again, it's wonderful that they can be a part of what we're doing. So great. Thank you for joining us today, TWR 360 audience. Um, We're very pleased that you could join us and uh, continue to pray for and to support that wonderful ministry, Trans World Radio, both in their shortwave radio work and in their global work um, having to do with their uh, uh, online presence, TWR 360. All right, let me go on to the next question that comes from Joyce. Were Adam and Eve allowed to partake of the fruit from the tree of life 
before the fall. All right, Joyce, I'm going to repeat your question. I hope everybody's going to listen to this very carefully. Your question is, were Adam and Eve allowed to partake of the fruit? And again, you use the terminology allowed to partake. And uh, I would just simply say this. Yes, they were allowed to partake. Now, did they partake of the fruit of the tree of life before the fall? Yeah, we don't know. We just simply don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But were they allowed to? Yes, because the only tree they were prohibited from partaking from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Again, I would just recommend you take a look at uh, Genesis chapters 2 and 3 if you don't really know what I'm talking about here. But if you just carefully read it, you notice that we are told that they were only prohibited from partaking from one tree, not two, just one. But we aren't told if they did partake from the fruit of the tree of life. So again, we have a yes answer, were they allowed? But we would have to say we don't know to whether or not they did partake of the fruit from the tree of life. Hope that helps you there, Joyce. I'll go on to the next question now from Mark. So when the Antichrist government says we get the mark of the beast, we should? Mark, absolutely not. I'm glad you raised the question. But of course, Mark, you know, we should not. No one should take the mark of the beast because we are commanded to obey the government, but not when they tell us to disobey God. And receiving the mark of the beast, especially because in the book of Revelation, the receiving of the mark of the beast is connected to the worship of this world leader or his governmental system of some kind that is absolutely idolatry and sin against God, a sin that God specifically speaks against. So, yes, we have a general command to obey the government and to submit to government, but no, their authority over any person or over the believer is not absolute. When they tell us to disobey God, we obey God first and disobey the government. So, yeah, thank you, Mark, for that question. I'm glad I could clarify that. Again, I just want to emphasize, God never commands absolute submission on a human level. Friends, we know the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and in other New Testament passages, in Colossians, in 1 Peter, that wives should submit to their husband. It just plainly says that. But no one should think that it is an absolute submission that no matter what the husband does, the wife is to submit. A wife does not need to submit to an abusive husband and just continue to take a beating. That would be disobedience to God. So again, um, we just always need to understand that, yes, there is a strong command for believers to submit in congregation, in workplace, in family, in government, a strong command, but it is not an absolute command. That's the, the thing that we work through that. So, Mark, thank you for your question there. Tony asks this question. God made his promise to Abraham and Sarah about having a child. They are known for their faith. Sarah asked Abraham to lay with her maidservant after the promise. Could this be seen as losing faith? Tony, I can answer that question with one word. Yes. Okay, let me elaborate just a minute. 
Yes, it was absolutely losing faith. Um, Abram and Sarai were guilty of doing what we often do. Let's just be honest. We often do this. We sin by trying to help God out in the fulfillment of his promises. Now, trying to help God out in a sinful or unbelieving way. Uh, uh, There are times, of course, when our activity is incorporated into the fulfillment of God's promise. I don't want to give anybody the impression that we are completely passive in regard to God's promises. But we are never to sin. We're never to act in unbelief in regard to God's promise. And this is exactly what Abram and Sarai did in pursuing the path of having a child through the maidservant, Hagar. So, yes, you're absolutely correct that that was a demonstration of their unbelief, and uh, it was an unbelief that ended up causing a lot of trouble. Now, let me say this. Um, We see in Abraham, and Sarai too later, Sarah, we see in Abraham and Sarah tremendous faith later. The faith of being willing to sacrifice your son, that's faith. However, it's comforting for us to know that it was not an absolute faith from the very beginning. That Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, their names were changed by God. Abraham and Sarah grew in faith developed in faith through the years. And that's encouraging for all of us. I I sometimes think that if Abraham sometimes shared my unbelief, that means that sometimes I can share his faith. Praise the Lord. Okay, next question, uh, something that comes in from TWR360. Vita asks the question, the Sabbath is which day? Okay, well, let me go very plainly, on the Jewish calendar, there's no doubt the Sabbath was the seventh day, uh, Saturday is what we would call it. Actually, on the Jewish calendar, it would be from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. So from that span of time, not exactly the same 24 hours that we would use in a modern Western calendar. So that day, the seventh day, was the Sabbath on the Jewish calendar. Christians began to meet together and to worship God on the first day of the week. We find evidence of this in the book of Acts and in the book of Colossians. Perhaps in memorial of that being the day in which the resurrected Christ was revealed to his disciples. But we know from Corinthians and we know from the book of Acts that Christian disciples gathered together on the first day, and they began to regard that as their Sabbath. Maybe this was because in the earliest church, um, all the Christians were originally Jewish Christians, and they would go to synagogue on Saturday, and on the first day of the week, Sunday, they would have their own gatherings. Maybe it started out that way. So, the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath is no doubt that it is 
Saturday or Friday into Saturday. But the Christian world, starting in the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, and Colossians makes reference to it too, that God gives believers the liberty to regard every day as the Sabbath, and there's the pattern of worshiping God on the first day. But let's be honest. There is no direct command from God that we must worship him on a particular day. So even though it is a well-ingrained tradition in most of the Christian world, a pattern that goes back to biblical times, to worship God on Sunday, we can't say that that day of the week is a specific command. So for somebody else, if their time of uh, worship, the word, community with God's people, prayer together with God's people, if that time is on Saturday or Thursday or Sunday, well, they have liberty in Jesus Christ to do exactly those things. Hope that helps you there. Uh, somebody's asking a question, who is the statue on my shelf today? Well, thank you for asking. That is a little bust of William Tyndale, the great translator of the first or the early, early popular uh, English Bibles. An amazing man of faith and energy and effectiveness for the kingdom of God. Uh, anybody who reads the Bible in English should be grateful for the work of William Tyndale, uh, that's who's back over my shoulder here today. Joyce asks this question. Uh, wait, we already got that question from Joyce. Um, here, a question from uh, Mark who asks, why is the Passover always mentioned in terms of Christ being our sacrifice and not the day of atonement? Wow, Mark, you know what? That's a very good question. There was an aspect of atonement with the Passover. And what we mean by atonement is um, the atoning work of being having sin passed over, paid for by a representative. Uh, it was the blood of that lamb. That lamb was the subject of judgment so that the people within the house marked by the Passover blood would not be the subjects of judgment. I think God wanted a focus on the Day of Atonement more for national Israel, and he wanted Passover to be more world-encompassing. Notice this. At the first Passover recorded in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel were still in Egypt, but just about to begin their great exodus out of Egypt, the blood of the Passover lamb would have been good for anybody who offered it. Anybody. If an Egyptian, if an Amalekite, if a Hittite, if an Israelite, if they would have offered the Passover lamb and applied the blood to their doorposts as God commanded, they would have been spared the judgment of the firstborn. So there was something transnational about the Passover from its very beginning. Whereas the Day of Atonement was always focused on national Israel. So I've never thought about this until you raised it right now, Mark, but I'm thinking that perhaps God puts an emphasis on 
the Passover instead of the Day of Atonement because he wants to emphasize that attitude of, or the aspect, I should say, of atonement for all the nations that will believe in God's Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, rather than just something that was specifically engineered for Israel alone. Maybe if I thought more about it, Mark, I would uh, uh, come to some additional conclusions, but I could say that that write-off is why I think there could be an emphasis. It's an emphasis on the transnational aspect of Passover more than the focused national aspect of the Day of Atonement. Okay, next question comes from Bob. Can you clearly explain, oh boy, I hope I can clearly explain, what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 28 about baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, making disciples, and how it applies to believers today? Okay, Bob, very good question. In Matthew chapter 28, famously, Jesus said, in that passage of scripture that we usually call the Great Commission. Let me just read that to everybody. Matthew chapter 28, uh, starting there at verse 19, where we read, well, no, let's start at verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, Bob, your question is really, um, what did Jesus mean when he said to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? I, I, I don't think Jesus was communicating specifically a baptismal formula. Okay, sometimes I get a little bit confused as to who the players are and what side they're on. But there is a group in the Christian world that says that you must be baptized into the name of Jesus and only into the name of Jesus. There is another group in the Christian world that believes that unless the person who baptized you said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like it says here in Matthew chapter 28, that if you do not use that baptismal formula, then you're not really baptized and you're not really saved. Let me say, I think that this is a misfocused controversy. I think that God emphasizes not a baptismal formula of words that are said at baptism, but the spirit of this that mainly means you need to baptize that person into or in the name of the triune God, the God that really exists. Look, when we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, what we're simply talking about is the God that actually exists. We don't believe in the Trinity or in the triune God simply because it's some matter of theology that we happen to latch on to. We believe in it because we earnestly believe that that is what the Bible teaches. It's the God who really exists. So you need to baptize people in the name of the biblical God. I think that's the emphasis there, Bob. Uh, so I, I would not relate it to a formula. Now, let me just say this. When I baptize people, this is what I say. I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. 
I cover both bases, not, not because I'm hung up on it. I cover both bases because I don't want somebody to come to that person later and say, in whose name were you baptized and try to shake them from something? Look, we cover both the bases. There's no problem to it at all. So we have that simple idea that those words of Jesus, I don't think imply a baptismal formula, but simply saying, baptize in the name of the biblical God, the triune God, the God who is really there. Then to making disciples. This reminds us that in the Christian world, conversion is not the only goal. Discipleship is the goal. Sometimes Christians get on the wrong track when they think in terms of what's the bare minimum a person has to do in order to be saved, and let's get people to do that. For example, there was a a prominent pastor in the United States who some years ago uh, told pastors that they really don't need to teach the Old Testament to their congregations because you don't need the Old Testament in order to be saved. Now, let me just say, uh, Andy Stanley, I think was his name, I agree, you don't need the Old Testament to be saved. But our goal is not the mere salvation of people as if mere conversion is enough. Our goal is discipleship. And you need a whole Bible in order to make a whole disciple. So I think that the error in that uh, is really just thinking in terms of what's the bare minimum that we can do for people or have them do in order for them to be saved. And then once they do that bare minimum, then, hey, whatever. No, we're out to not make mere converts. Our goal is to make disciples, people who know how to pray, people who know how to read their Bibles, people who know how to live a Christian life in holiness, people who know how to fast, people who know how to give. These different aspects of plain shoe leather, so to speak, discipleship, This is what God calls us to do. So that was the great commission in that. And that's what believers should be doing today. So again, Bob's question was, can you explain what Jesus means in Matthew 28 about baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit? And then again, I would just say that that isn't so much a baptismal formula as it is directing us to baptize in the name of the true God, the God of the Bible, the God who actually is. And he communicates an emphasis on baptism, excuse me, emphasis on discipleship that is to last to this day. So thank you for that question, Bob. Next question comes from Jordan. Jordan asks this question, excuse me just for a moment. If Paul said that he works harder than the other apostles, yet not him, but God's grace, more grace in him, do you believe that he has a greater reward from God than the other apostles? All right, well, let's go back to what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says. I think I might have said it was the first couple verses of 1 Corinthians. It is verse 10. It says this, Paul writing, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. All right, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. And Jordan is saying, 
On the basis of that, do I believe that he has a greater reward from God than the other apostles? Jordan, let me just give you a direct answer. Yes, I do. I mean, the Bible talks about us being rewarded, commensurate with our faithfulness and our fruit. And if Paul's hard working meant greater faithfulness, because that's one way that faithfulness can be demonstrated. Obviously, that's the only way, but it's one way that faithfulness is demonstrated to work hard. If Paul's faithfulness was demonstrated by hard work, and if he worked harder than the other apostles, then we would say that there would be more reward for the apostle Paul. I don't have any problem saying that. Now, look, one of the principles that we need to remember when it comes to God's rewarding is God has every right to reward in ways that we might regard as unexpected, or maybe even I would say um, uh, just um, unusual. It's easy for us to kind of think that we have God's reward all figured out. We know what he's doing with it. We know, okay, yeah, we have it all. But listen, folks, we just simply don't have God's reward figured out. We don't. God can and will reward in ways that seem to us to be simply unexpected. So we can't act as if we have it all figured out when it comes to God's reward. Hope that helps you there, Jordan. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Joyce. Another sip of water here. I wonder, Joyce says, how long the seraphim guarded the garden with that sword that turns all ways sounds like a laser to me. Well, Joyce, um, I wonder too. There are some people who believe that those cherubim were there at the Garden of Eden until the flood. Now, look, let's be honest. The Bible doesn't say that. We just don't know biblically how long. So I'm with you wondering how long they were there. But I will say with great confidence that they were there for at least some time. And there are some people who believe that they could have been there even up until the time of the flood. So we really can't speak where the Bible doesn't speak on this particular issue, but it is something interesting to think about and maybe speculate just about over. Okay, Susan asks, um, what does the Bible say about a woman officiating a wedding? I know in Timothy, it says that a woman shouldn't have authority over a man. I know that there are some women pastors who officiate weddings, but not sure if that's biblical. All right, Susan. Um, first of all, I agree with the more traditional explanation and understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says that he does not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the congregation is what he means because that whole context is about congregational life and church services in particular. So I, I don't think it applies to the workplace or to politics or education, on and on. But to, to the Christian congregation, it certainly does apply. Um, I do believe with what could be termed to be a more traditional understanding, if people are interested, and we'll put the link to this in our uh, description of this video, I do a very in-depth teaching on this 
uh, through 1 Timothy chapter 2, this relevant section, and it's available on this very same YouTube channel, and we'll throw the description into the um, description of this video. So if you want to know kind of how I understand that, uh, you can go to there and get the greater depth. Now, does that mean that a woman is prohibited from performing a marriage ceremony? I would regard this as a gray area, but I would lean towards saying no. Now, let, in other words, it means that a woman should not perform a wedding ceremony. Because look, let, let's let's be honest here. He, here's the yes side of the equation. Now, I want to acknowledge there's arguments to be made on both sides. The yes side of the equation would say, yes, a woman could conduct a marriage ceremony because the Bible itself does not give us any specific instruction as to who can conduct a marriage ceremony or how. As long as it's done in honor before the Lord and according to general scriptural principle, the Bible doesn't tell us who can or cannot conduct a wedding ceremony. So we shouldn't say who can or cannot conduct a wedding ceremony. That's on the yes side of it. Now, the no side of it, which I would regard to be a stronger case, but I can't say it's an absolute case, would say this. Um, the recognition of a marriage before God and before the state is something that should be done by a duly recognized minister. Someone who is recognized, ordained in some sense, and ordination in this sense, biblically speaking, according to the New Testament, is reserved for men and not for women in leadership of the congregation. Now, again, I understand that these are matters of great controversy. There are people who really debate these things. Um, I, I understand that. Again, I think I deal with it in greater depth here. So while acknowledging that I don't think the Bible speaks in this in a clear and absolute way, and why I can see why somebody would argue for the yes position on that, I think a stronger case is to be made for the no position. And uh, that, that's, that's what I would just say in that regard. Okay, let, let's, let's take it on a different sphere. Uh, there are people, believers, who get married not in a church, not before a pastor, but before a judge or a justice of the peace. What if that judge or justice of the peace is a woman? Well, I don't think biblically speaking you have any argument against that. So um, the, the difference would be is if it was in a church wedding. So again, I'll acknowledge that there's arguments to be made on both sides and that the scriptures don't speak definitively about this, but I, I would lean myself towards the no side if it's going to be what we would call a church wedding. Not that it has to happen within a church, but it'll be a duly recognized, uh, to use a, to a religious service. Okay, so thank you for that question, Susan. Here comes a question from Carol. Carol asks, is it possible that Satan causes us to remember our old sins and the temptation that went with it uh, in an effort to lead us back into that sin? This happens to me occasionally and find myself fighting with memory to forget it. Carol, yeah, absolutely that's possible. Carol, we, we just understand that the devil is a monster 
And the devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And one of the things he wants to steal, kill, and destroy is the joy and the confidence and the assurance of the believer. And he'll use any weapon he can to work against those things. So, um, yeah, that's what I would just say. If he can try to, you know, dredge up the memory of old sins, then he'll do it. Now, Susan, I I just want to suggest something to you. And I think I first read this uh, in regards to Martin Luther, but maybe it was somebody else. Luther once said, again, I I may be wrong on whom I'm intruding, but let's just say it's Martin Luther. Luther once said that when the devil tries to persuade you that you're a sinner and remind you of your sin, don't argue with him. Don't try to protest him that you're not. Matter of fact, he tells you about this sin and that sin and the other sin. You, You can even tell the devil, hey, you know, there's a few you've forgotten about. Let me remind you about this and that and the other thing. Because look, we have sinned a lot. There is a lot that God has forgiven us for. But this is the attitude we need to have when Satan brings such accusations against us. Yes, I know that I am a great sinner, but praise the Lord, I have an even greater Savior in Jesus Christ. That really needs to be our attitude. We understand that we're sinners. Yes, we get it but we have an even greater Savior. So the key to this is not in any way trying to minimize our sin. The key to this is trying to maximize and glorify Jesus Christ in who he is and what he does for us. All right, let me go on to the next question from Vernon, who asks, Why did Jesus need to cleanse heaven with his blood? Um, Hebrews chapter 9. Vernon, that is a great question. And I think it kind of gets back to the idea that the blood of cleansing in the Old Testament sacrificial system was not given merely to cleanse something that was impure, but to protect the purity of things that already were pure. In other words, the uh, veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the um, sprinkling of blood upon the uh, Ark of the Covenant itself. It's not that those things were impure or uh, unholy, but they had the blood of cleansing to promote, to honor to recognize their holiness and to recognize the atonement that happened that would bring cleansing from sin. Uh, So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was sin that needed to be cleansed. There were other purposes and other significance. The significance of that blood of cleansing and atonement was broader than just the cleansing or purification from sin. And it was in this broader area that it says that Jesus, um, so to speak, offered his blood. I, I, I don't know if we would literally say that Jesus sprinkled blood in heaven, but it, at least in form, in, in, um, in picture, he did. That may very well be what Hebrews chapter 9 is speaking about in that regard. So that's going to be our last question for the day. Friends, I am absolutely thrilled that you've been able to join us for today. Thank you for that. 
And uh, I do just want to say that next week I plan to be with you. I will be with you on location from Middle Tennessee next week, uh, Thursday afternoon. It'll be my pleasure to join with you, and we'll get to it next week and take your questions once again. Uh, Please continue to pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. God is blessing. God is extending our reach all over the world with absolutely free, helpful, quality, trusted Bible resources. And um, I think God is doing that because people like you are praying. So thank you for your prayers for our ongoing work. And I want to once again thank my friends at Blue Letter Bible. Uh, Here's the shirt. I love those guys over there. They do a great work unto the Lord. And you should check out that website, blb.org. They do carry my written commentary in English and in Spanish. But in addition to that, uh, they have unbelievable Bible resources. It's a great Bible website Greek, Hebrew resources that are beyond your ability to use. I'm going to say, I mean, they they have such extensive reason, then lots and lots of other Bible resources. I hope you'll find that helpful. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for letting us know where you're from, from all over the world. And uh, God willing, and if we live, we will see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.